Please remain standing, dear friends, for the reading of God's Word as we continue our consideration of 1 Peter. My sermon text this evening, or this afternoon, I should say, is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, focusing especially on verse 18, but I'm going to read verses 13 through 21 uh, to offer you the fuller context. So once again, let us hear God's holy word from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for the Lord's blessing upon the preaching of his word. Our gracious Lord and Father in heaven, we do thank you for your grace to us, and we thank you that Christ, by his precious blood, has ransomed us from our sins and from every futile and vain way. We ask that by your spirit you would instruct us through this portion of your God-breathed, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word. As we come before your word this afternoon, help us to be attentive and to give, give hearty attention to the proclamation of your word. And Lord, we ask that you would grant me the grace to speak forth and declare your word with clarity and power and faithfulness. We pray these things through Christ our Lord and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The title of my sermon this afternoon is Ransomed from Futility. And there's three key words to listen for in my sermon this afternoon, the words ignorance, tradition, and ransomed. Well, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we believers often do not appreciate the full implications of what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us when he ransomed us with his precious blood. To put it simply, many Christians, it seems, seem to think that salvation simply means that Christ delivers us from hell so that we get to go to heaven when we die, period, end of story. Now, of course, the truth that our Lord has indeed redeemed us from hell and has secured for us a place in heaven, this is indeed wondrously glorious and absolutely essential a truth. It's essential to the gospel message. It's part of, a big part of what makes the gospel, which means good news, such good news, that Christ has ransomed us from hell by his precious blood and has secured for us eternal life in heaven. It is indeed true that our Savior died on the cross 
to redeem us from sin so that we might be delivered from hell and destined for heaven. However, friends, as our passage for this Lord's Day afternoon underscores, Christ's saving work on the cross has also redeemed us from the futile, pagan, non-Christian way of life that for some of us had been passed down to us from our parents perhaps, a futile and vain way of life that had been received by tradition from our ancestors, our forefathers. Beloved, redemption and salvation are not just about going to heaven when we die, although praise God, that is a big and wonderful part of our salvation. But these blessings of grace are also about being given a new way of life to pursue while we are yet alive in this present life. Our passage for this Lord's Day afternoon is set within a context where Peter is exhorting his readers to prepare themselves for action, the action of living a life of obedient discipleship unto the Lord, a life of holiness and reverent conduct. And you will recall that Peter is writing this epistle to believers who were facing uh, the, the prospect of severe persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And Peter is writing to these believers in order to encourage them in their faith and also to provide them with instructions for godly living, even in the midst of a hostile environment. Dear ones, in our passage for today, the Holy Spirit, through the inspired Apostle Peter, calls us to live throughout the time of our journey through this present life with an attitude of reverence, especially in light of the fact that we are privileged to call upon God as our Heavenly Father and in light of the fact that we have been redeemed at such a great cost, at the cost of the precious, priceless blood of Christ our Savior. So for my sermon this afternoon, I want to turn our attention, especially as I mentioned, to verse 18 of our text. And one of the things that we learn in this important portion of God's word is that the Christless, non-Christian way of life is futile, aimless, and rooted in ignorance. As Peter writes in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from what? From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The Christless, non-Christian way of life is futile, aimless, and rooted in ignorance. The Greek word that is translated in verse 18 as futile in the English Standard Version, it's translated in versions like the New King James Version as aimless, this is a word that could also be translated as vain. Vain in the sense of being void of result, according to Vine's Dictionary. In the context of this passage, it appears that Peter is saying that the Christless way of life is aimless or vain. Why? Because it is a life which is rooted in and based upon ignorance. It's a life built upon ignorance. But... Ignorance of a particular sort. Back in verse 14, Peter had described the life of his readers prior to their conversion as your former ignorance. Let's go back to verse 14. Peter writes, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of what? The passions, meaning the sinful passions of your former 
ignorance. Remember, Peter is writing to a group of believers who, many of whom had been converted to, to faith in Christ and adherence to the true and living God of Scripture. They had been converted to Christ from a pagan background. They had come to Christ as idol-worshiping Gentiles who put aside their idols to serve the true and living God. And so Peter says, your former non-Christian pagan way of life was, was built on ignorance. It was your former ignorance. It's no longer an ignorance that they lived in, however, because they had been delivered from that ignorance by the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It appears that the kind of ignorance which Peter says characterizes the non-Christian way of life is is not an ignorance which excuses us from moral responsibility before God. Rather, the ignorance of the unsaved, the ignorance of the unconverted, the unregenerate, is a culpable ignorance. It is a guilty ignorance. It is a willful ignorance that is rooted in a heart of rebellion against God, in a sinful hardening of the heart, and in a willful suppression of the truth in unrighteousness. And when we consider, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see that though in one sense the unsaved do indeed live in ignorance, as Peter tells us here in our passage for today, there is another real sense in which even the most hardened, uh, unrepentant sinner knows the truth about God. God's knowledge is, is uh, inherent we have what Calvin calls the sense of the divine. Since we were created in God's image, we have implanted or imprinted, I should say, upon our souls a sense of the divine. We know in our heart of hearts through natural revelation, general revelation, God's revelation in creation and in human conscience. We know in our heart of hearts that God is and that we are accountable to him. And the scriptures bear clear testimony to this fact. Just to take you to a few passages for our consideration this afternoon to compare uh, this theme of ignorance and, and the knowledge of God among unbelievers. Look at Romans 1, verses 18 through uh, 21. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, where the Apostle Paul is speaking of Gentile unbelievers. And he says this, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God? This is why the wrath of God is being revealed. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. How has he shown it to them? Verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Even the unbeliever, even the unregenerate, in their heart of hearts know that the true and living God is. They know it by natural or general revelation, God's revelation of himself in creation and in human conscience. Paul assumes this also in Acts chapter 14, verse 17, one of the sermons that he preaches to a pagan audience. Let's turn to Acts 14, verse 17, where Paul is addressing the pagans in Lystra. And he says this in verse 17, 
as Paul proclaims to these pagans the true and living God, he says, yet he says of this God, yet he, God, did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. <coughs> Excuse me. God has not left himself without a witness among any people. But although there is a real sense in which the unsaved know the truth of God, there is another real sense in which they live in profound ignorance of the true and living God, at least in terms of the spiritual and saving knowledge of the true and living God. For example, the Apostle Paul describes the times before the gospel came to the Gentile world. These times are described by Paul as the times of ignorance, as Paul preaches to the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, he describes the times before the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles as the times of ignorance. <clears throat> and Paul also has something to say about this culpable ignorance of the Gentile world in Ephesians 4. Let me read Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 19. <clears throat> Pardon me. If you turn there to Ephesians 4. Beginning at verse 17, we read this. Paul, again, Paul here in this uh, epistle is writing to believers uh, who are mostly of a, of a Gentile background, who had been converted to Christ from pagan idolatry. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God <clears throat> because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Why are the unsaved described here as being alienated from the life of God? It is, as it says in Ephesians 4.18, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. In other words, this ignorance is due to, it is because of the Gentiles' hardness or blindness of heart. This culpable ignorance has always led and continues to lead the unsaved to live a vain, futile, aimless way of life, as illustrated by pagan religious devotion to idolatry. Earlier in the service, not too long ago, I read a passage from uh, the prophet Isaiah, one of the uh, numerous prophetic passages in the Old Testament where the prophet or the Holy Spirit through the prophet is mocking idolatry, mocking the practice of idolatry. And you recall in that passage that I read from Isaiah 44, Isaiah is mocking the, the man who, who cuts down a tree and he uses some of the wood uh, to... to stoke a fire and to provide himself with bread and warmth. Uh, and he says, aha, I'm warm, I felt the fire. But then he takes another segment of that wood and he sets up an idol to worship as a god. What foolishness, what spiritual blindness, what aimlessness, what vanity is illustrated by religious devotion to idol worship. The Christless way of life is aimless because it is dominated 
by sinful desires rather than being mastered by Christ. Getting back to our passage for today and looking uh, at verse 14, we are told again, as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Notice the language that Peter uses there. The unbelieving way of life was dominated by the passions of your former ignorance. What passions are those? Well, the late Bible commentator William Barclay, and he wrote a, a, a while ago, so this you'll notice from this quotation, it's a little bit dated, but William Barclay writes this in his commentary about the way of life, the aimless way of life inherited by tradition from their forefathers that was common among the pagans in the first century. Dr. Barclay writes, as we read the records of that world into which Christianity came, we cannot but be appalled at the sheer fleshliness of life within it. There was desperate poverty at the lower ends of the social scale, but at the top we read of banquets which cost thousands of pounds, where peacocks' brains and nightingales' tongues were served. Never had those at our fellowship meal, thankfully, but... Um, but peacock's brains and nightingale's tongues were served, and where Emperor Vitellius set on the table at one banquet 2,000 fish and 7,000 birds. Chastity was forgotten. Marshall speaks of a woman who had reached her tenth husband. Juvenile of a woman who had eight husbands in five years. And Jerome tells us that in Rome there was one woman who was married to her 23rd husband, she herself being his 21st wife. And we think it's bad today, right? Both in Greece and in Rome, homosexual practices were so common that they had come to be looked on as natural. It was a world mastered by desire, whose aim was to find newer and wilder ways of gratifying its lusts. Sounds a lot like our world today, too, doesn't it? The Christless way of life is vain. It's futile. It's vain because of its ignorance. It's vain because of its idolatry. It's vain because of its immorality. The Christless way of life is also aimless and vain because it is ultimately futile and lacking in any higher purpose. You see, friends, Without the true and living God revealed in Holy Scripture, without the true and living, sovereign and triune God of the Bible, there is no ultimate purpose, there is no ultimate aim to our lives. Without God, there is no reason why we are here. Without God, there is no dignity, human dignity. We are simply uh, water-filled meat puppets who show up for a very brief time and then vanish into eternal forgetfulness. We're basically meat bags who showed up as a cosmic accident and we are destined to take an eternal dirt nap. And there's nothing we can do about it if the true and living God of the Bible does not exist. And without the true and living, sovereign, triune God of Scripture, there's also no ultimate moral standard like the Ten Commandments. Morality is, is simply uh, what people, what the majority thinks is best at any given moment in time. If God is not real, then human dignity is a self-serving illusion. I always, I always uh, kind of shake my head when I hear of secularists and atheists and skeptics saying, well, we have to make sure that we help our children to have high self-esteem. 
Why would you want, if, if, you live in a, if we live in an atheistic universe and we're all cosmic accidents and we all have evolved out of pond scum, why should we feel good about ourselves? Why? Why should we have a sense of dignity and self-esteem? The pagan Christless way of life is indeed vain, empty, aimless. Only Jesus Christ can fill that emptiness with his presence, his grace, and his purpose. We also learn in our passage that the Christless way of life is passed on by tradition from past generations. We learn this vanity from our ancestors. It is passed on by tradition. The term tradition indicates being passed on from generation to generation. And as I'll point out in a few moments, there's bad tradition, there's pagan and sinful tradition, and there's also good tradition, apostolic tradition. In other words, the Word of God, the Bible. In verse 18, Peter describes the futile ways inherited by your, from your forefathers. The New King James Version says, your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. In context here, Peter obviously seems to be speaking of the idolatrous and immoral traditions which had been passed on to his readers from their ancestors prior to their conversion to Christ. But you know, friends, another valid application of this principle is that Christ has delivered us from every kind of unbiblical, pagan, or heretical tradition. Every kind of belief and practice handed down from generation to generation that is not rooted in the Word of God or in the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this would include not just idolatrous pagan traditions, but even so-called Christian traditions that are based on, for example, works righteousness and a legalistic approach to God, rather than based upon the saving work of Jesus Christ in his cross and resurrection. In contrast to such bad traditions, such unbelieving traditions, is the true tradition with a capital T, namely the deposit of the apostolic faith, the faith as Jude describes it, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that deposit, that apostolic deposit of faith and practice that has been inscripturated, written down in the New Testament scriptures and passed on to the church of Jesus Christ along with the Old Testament scriptures as well, from generation to generation. This is the true tradition. This, my friends, this book is the true tradition that the scriptures speak of. And by the way, the, the uh, New Testament does use tradition in this positive sense as well. It uses tradition, obviously, in the negative sense, the Pharisees' traditions, for example, the mere traditions of men. But then it speaks of... of a positive tradition, gospel tradition. Turn, for example, to 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. In that verse, we read this. Paul, in wrapping up that epistle, he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the what? In accord with the tradition that you received from us. This apostolic tradition. This tradition, the true gospel faith. 
that is passed on from generation to generation. Or consider Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, where we read, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Uh, in other words, either through the preached word or the written word that he had given uh, to them. And there are other examples as well. Well, dear friends, let me ask you, have you understood and received the biblical apostolic tradition, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ, that faith once for all delivered to the saints and passed on in the true, faithful, visible church from generation to generation, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you received that tradition? You know, one of our, our most important missions as a visible church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to pass on the faith once for all delivered to the saints from generation to generation. And one of the things that really, uh, that really warms my heart as a pastor is hearing the young people in our church sing the hymns of the faith and get up during our memory work time and recite scripture passages that they're learning and recite the children's catechism and join the congregation together as we recite the shorter catechism together, as we memorize scripture and sound Christian doctrine together. Because one of the major functions of the church is the function of being a tradent. That is to say, passing on the tradition, passing on the faith once for all delivered to the saints from generation to generation. Parents, you have a responsibility to pass the faith on to your children, not only to pray with and for your children, but to teach them the word of God and to ground them in the faith through catechizing them and training them and instructing them in the ways of the Lord and by being a good example to them of living out your faith and repentance as well. By the way, our children need to see our repentance as well. They need to see us model not only our faith, but when we mess up, when we sin, when you get into a, a fight with your spouse in front of your children, do you apologize to your children for that? Do you repent before your children? This is how we pass the faith on, by catechizing, by training, by instruction, and by example. Finally, beloved, there's many, uh, much more that could be said about our passage for today. I've barely scratched the surface, but let us be encouraged by the fact that Christ has ransomed us from the futile, aimless ways that we have inherited from our forefathers. Christ has ransomed us. Yes, he's ransomed us from the guilt and penalty of our sin, but he's also ransomed us from the futile, vain, empty ways of the world that have been passed on to us from past generations. This is a major thrust of verse 18. Again, as Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. In other words, you're not obligated to follow in the footsteps of your ancestors. The generational sins of the past are not binding upon you. By the grace of God, the gospel frees you from those shackles so that you can begin a new trajectory for generations yet to come by the grace of God as you embrace the gospel and pass it on to the next generation. Not only have we believers been redeemed from the guilt of our sin and the penalty of our sin through the redemptive work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, praise God, beloved, 
we have also been freed from bondage to the aimless ways of sin. Because the risen and reigning Christ is our Lord and Savior, and because of our saving union with Him, we are not bound to bow before the wicked, vain, fruitless, and idolatrous practices to which we had previously been enslaved. If any man be in Christ, he not only may become a new creation, he is a new creation. All things have become new, at least in principle. Brothers and sisters, we are free in Christ, ransomed from the futile, aimless ways inherited from past generations. My dear listeners, do you know this spiritual freedom in your life? Have you been redeemed from the aimless conduct received by your ancestors? Or perhaps, if not from your ancestors, passed along to you by the godless influences of your culture, your upbringing, your education, or whatever the case may be. Some of our missionaries serve in, in areas uh, where ancestor worship, for example, is regarded as a social obligation. You're obligated uh, to offer sacrifices to the dead spirits of your ancestors, and it's considered a great affront to societal norms not to follow in that. But when, we, when someone comes to faith in Christ, they are freed from that. It becomes, it's difficult when you've got uncomprehending family members and social pressure to conform to those old patterns. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we and all of God's people are freed from such vain, futile ways. And we have been freed from those futile ways that we may follow Jesus Christ, the true way. Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let us embrace him, follow him, and trust him. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, our sovereign and eternal God, we praise you and thank you for Christ's precious blood, which ransoms us from our sins. And we thank you that through his saving work and through our union with him in his death and resurrection, we have been ransomed from the vain, futile ways that are so deeply embedded in this world. We have been delivered from those ways that we might follow the true and living way, the narrow way, the way which is Christ himself. Be with us now and help us, by your grace, to walk in faith and repentance after a new obedience on that narrow road. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.